Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to Luke, the 10th chapter. Luke chapter 10, we're going to read some verses there in just a moment. We're actually going to read the prelude to the parable of the prodigal son. And those verses will help to introduce our, our question for Q&A morning. Every now and then I'll get a good question that's meaty enough that I think just merits its own kind of singular focus on a Sunday morning. And this morning is one of those questions. I want to deal with that in a way that I think will be helpful for all of us as we have interactions and conversations with others about the Bible and spiritual things. Luke the 10th chapter is where that's going to begin. It is great to see everybody this fine Lord's Day morning. Thankful that the rain has lit up and even though it is a little bit overcast, it is still uh, a very pleasant morning here in uh, February, the very last day of February. We're already on the cusp of March. Thankful for the Lord and all His provisions for us. Glad that we're able to be here together uh, to worship Him today in spirit and in truth. Let's read together in Luke the 10th chapter. I'm reading beginning in verse 25. In Luke chapter 10 and in verse 25... This is uh, the setup to what Jesus uh, leads to Jesus teaching the parable of the Good Samaritan. This interaction between Jesus and this lawyer. In Luke chapter 10, I'm reading in verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Just stop right there. Focus on that idea. What do you read in the Scriptures? How do you understand that? One translation actually renders that, what is your interpretation? Thinking a little bit about that idea of interpretation, what do you see, what is your interpretation of this image? You've maybe seen this picture, this image before. What do you see when you look at that picture? Some of you look at that picture and you're saying, well, I see see an old woman. She's got a really big nose and she's got kind of a downcast, sour look on her face. Others of you, though, you look at that picture and you say, well, I see see a young lady. She's got her head turned. She's facing in the other direction. That's what I see going on there. Or what about this picture here? What is your interpretation of it? What do you see there? Someone says, well, once again, I see, I see kind of the, the, the picture there of a woman. The shadow is cast upon her face. You can see her lips and her eyes and her hair there. It looks like a beautiful woman. Somebody else looks at that and they say, no, what I see is I see, I see the silhouette of a man playing a saxophone. He's got a big nose himself. I see a jazz musician there. Maybe this picture here maybe well summarizes the dilemma for us. What do you see there? What do those guys see there on the ground? Well, the guy on the left, to him, what he sees is he sees the number six. The guy on the right, though, very clearly to him, that is the number nine. You see, it's all about perspective, isn't it? You know, from one angle, you can see things in one way, but you know, from another angle, I can see things very, very differently. Now, of course, we understand how people are able to arrive at different conclusions when you're talking about very subjective things like like music or art or even things like this, optical illusions. But what about when it comes to very objective matters, matters of truth? What about when it comes to the Bible, the inspired Word of God. Let me just paint for you a little scenario. You tell me if you've had this experience before. You're having a Bible discussion with somebody, a co-worker, a neighbor, a friend, and you're talking about some particular subject, and so you then direct them to the passage of Scripture that maybe talks about that particular issue. Maybe you're talking about the subject of marriage. And so you direct them to Matthew the 19th chapter. 
And you talk about the context there. And you talk about what Jesus says about marriage. How it's between one man and one woman for one lifetime together. That's what the Bible teaches about marriage. Maybe the subject is baptism. You're talking about the role of baptism and salvation and you believe that that is essential for salvation. So you go to Acts 2.38 or you go to Romans chapter 6 and you're showing those passages explaining what they mean that baptism is essential for man's salvation. Or maybe you're talking about what I preached on last Sunday. Talking about music in worship. What is God's will for that? So you direct your friend to Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, Hebrews 13 to point out that God wants singing in worship. God says nothing about instrumentation. And when you're finished explaining all of those passages to that person, that person then voices their disagreement. Maybe you've been able to see it on their face, but they finally are able to voice their disagreement with what you've just said, and they voice that by saying, well, well, that's just your interpretation." That's just what you get out of that passage. That's how you see that. As if to say that, well, that's the conclusion that you've come to, but I've studied that passage, I see that differently, and my conclusion is equally valid. It's kind of almost like those pictures that we were just looking at. There's really no right or wrong answer here. It's all a very subjective sort of thing. It's simply a matter of how you see it. It's a matter of how you interpret that. You should know, at least this has been my experience, that when someone lobs out that statement, that's just your interpretation, generally that's meant to be a conversation killer. It's meant to just kind of bring things to a grinding halt. I don't want to talk about this anymore. That's how you see it. This is how I see it. We're going to go our separate ways. In fact, what that statement really implies, whether people realize it or not when they say it, what it implies is that the Bible is really just too vague for us to be able to come to any kind of definite, concrete conclusions. Nobody can say for certain that this is the way that things are. Everybody has the right to their own interpretation. I've got mine. You've got yours. Well, what about that? What about this idea of interpretation as it pertains to the Bible? Well, I should tell you that it is true that when it comes to the Word of God, we do have to interpret what it means. That's what our opening text just showed us in Luke chapter 10. That lawyer asked Jesus about obtaining eternal life. And in verse 26, Jesus asked, What is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law of God on that? And to the lawyer's credit, he knows what God's Word says about that. In fact, he's able to quote it from memory. That's verse 27. As he quotes there from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and some other passages in the Old Testament. What I really want you to notice though is Jesus' response in verse 28. In verse 28, Jesus says to him, You have answered correctly. Do you see there? Jesus seems to indicate that there is a correct way to interpret Scripture. But by inference, that also means that there is an incorrect way to interpret Scripture. And while you and I, when we have conversations with others, we certainly do not want to get into some kind of a I'm right, you're wrong, back and forth kind of thing that ends up just leading to all kinds of arrogance and ugliness and hurt feelings. At the same time, we do not want the truth of God's Word to just be brushed off with this claim, this very dismissive claim of that's just your interpretation, end of discussion. I'm not satisfied with that. What we want is we want to know how to deal with that. How to respond to that. 
We are not okay with turning the Bible into some kind of an optical illusion where you're able to see it how you want to see it and I'm able to see it how I want to see it and we both go our separate ways because there's no way that we could all arrive at the same conclusion. That's not so. And this morning, I want to say so. This morning, I want us to think for just a little bit about how to engage with people who would try to dodge the meaning of God's Word by pushing out that line, that's just your interpretation. And to do that this morning, what I want to do is I want to give you three bold statements that will help us to kind of shape our thinking, to know how to respond, how to act. It kind of gets us prepared. Whenever somebody tries to derail the conversation with that's just your interpretation, and then as a bonus at the end, I'm going to give you what I believe is the best response when someone says, that's just your interpretation. Are you ready for that? That all needs to begin with this very first bold statement, a bold statement about certainty. And that is that knowing everything is not a requirement for knowing something. I do want to deal with this mistaken thinking that we are not able to arrive at definite concrete conclusions because, well, well, there's just no way for us to know everything in the Bible. I mean, look at the Bible. It's a huge book. Even if you spent your lifetime studying it, you would never know everything in there. On top of that, there's a lot of, well, there's a lot of doubts about the Bible. There's all kinds of questions about translations. And what about manuscript evidence? And how can we be sure we have the right books? And how do we actually know that it's been copied down right throughout the years? All of that puts a lot of dust in the air and it ends up clouding our ability to be absolutely certain with the text of Scripture. I want to refute that. Look with me in Luke the first chapter. In Luke chapter 1, I want you to see that Luke, he is not seemingly burdened with this problem. In Luke chapter 1, notice how Luke begins his great gospel. In Luke chapter 1 and in verse 1, Luke says, he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus." Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Can I ask you? Is Luke saying there that if Theophilus reads his gospel, at the end of that, Theophilus will know everything about everything? Is that what Luke is saying there? Is Luke suggesting there that all of the mysteries of God, everything in the entire universe that a person could ever want to know, you will know that information by the time you finish my 24 chapters? Of course not. What Luke does say though is he says, Theophilus, what I'm sending you is enough. It is enough so that you can be sure and that you can have certainty about these events pertaining to Jesus, and you at the end of that can arrive at a solid and firm conviction about what all of that means. In fact, Paul says something similar to Timothy. Look with me in 2 Timothy 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, as Paul writes to his young brother in the faith, I want you to watch in 2 Timothy chapter 2 how Paul says that you can know some things, Timothy... And you can know enough of those things so that you will understand and you will believe and you will be able to act upon them even if you don't know everything. 
In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 15. In 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 15, Paul says, Do your best. Be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, verse 16 now, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Question once again. Does Paul mean here that if Timothy will study his Bible, that at the end of all of that, Timothy will have a full 100% understanding on, on everything? That Timothy will be almost omniscient? He will be like God. He will have the knowledge of God Himself about everything. Of course not. But Paul does believe that Timothy can and he should know enough from the Scriptures to know what is true, to be able to handle that truth, furthermore to be able to spot the difference between truth and irreverent babble that helps no one. What Paul says, what Luke says, is that we can know enough to reach a point of certainty about God's will and about God's expectation for our lives and we can arrive at that without knowing 105% of every single detail. And that of course is true not just when it comes to the Bible. That's true in other facets of life as well, isn't it? Does anybody here, does anybody here know with 100% certainty that the architect who designed this building, the architect who designed the building and the very ceiling that is above our heads right now as I'm speaking, does everybody know with 100% certainty that architect was certified and experienced and did all the proper calculations on the load and the weight and all of that stuff together? Do you know that with 100% certainty? Do you know that if the construction people who did a lot of the legwork on that, do you know that they did their job properly and that they did it right? Do you know if the mechanical engineer or the city inspector or whoever comes and checks on all of that, do you know that they actually knew what they were doing? Do you have 100% certainty that the roof that is above our heads right now, it will not collapse? Are you certain of that? For the sake of this illustration, I really need the roof not to collapse right now or even start making any weird noises. The fact of the matter is, we don't all know that with 100% certainty. There may be a person or two in here who has that certainty, but most of the rest of us do not have that certainty. But you know what? Like many things that we deal with in life, the roads that we drive on, the bridges that we drive over, the cars that we drive in, the restaurants that we get our food at, the pharmacist who fills our prescriptions. We don't have to know everything about all of that in order for us to have confidence and for us to have certainty so that we can then live our lives and take action. And as I turn back to Luke the 10th chapter where we began, I think that's exactly what Jesus does with that lawyer. You know, the lawyer, he asked about eternal life. How do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well... What's your understanding of the Scriptures? He gives the response. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, hey, you have answered correctly. You've interpreted that correctly. But the man then asked that follow-up question. And the follow-up question was, well, who is my neighbor? And that is what then sets the stage for Jesus to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, I'm not going to reread the story of the Good Samaritan, verses 30 through 36, but let me ask you. Does Jesus tell everything that we may want to know about that story of the Good Samaritan? Does Jesus tell us, for example, everything that we would maybe want to know about the man who got attacked 
and was left for dead lying in the ditch? Do we know everything about his background and his upbringing and how much money he had? Do we know? No, we don't know all of that. Did Jesus tell us everything about the priest and the Levite? What those guys had been doing that day? Where they were going? Why they were so busy that they couldn't stop and help the man? Do we know everything about them? No. No, we don't know everything about them. Do we know everything about that Samaritan man? What was his motivation? What was he thinking? What was his background? Where was he in all of this? We don't know everything about that. We don't have to know. There is more than enough in those few verses of that parable. There's more than enough information there to help that lawyer and in fact to help us even today to arrive at the proper conclusions about the thing that Jesus is teaching. And as we think about not just that parable, but as we think about the Bible as a whole, do we have the original autographs that Luke wrote or that Paul wrote? No, we do not. Did any of us personally see Luke writing the Gospel of Luke or Paul writing any of those epistles? No, we did not. But do we have enough evidence to be able to draw some conclusions and have certainty about our faith? Yes, we do. In fact, we have more than enough evidence so that we can know that this book, it is the Word of God. What is in the Bible, what books make up the Scriptures, and as a result, we can have confidence. Don't let anybody discredit your well-studied conclusions with this flippant, well, that's just your interpretation, on the basis of somehow having uncertainty about the Scriptures. We can be certain even without knowing everything about everything. In fact, I would suggest to you that not only can we be certain, I believe God expects us to be certain about His Word. Because secondly this morning, God is able to speak plainly and clearly and when He does, He expects to be understood. You know, there was a time in our country when having strong convictions and standing on your convictions and knowing what you believe and being able to defend what you believe and standing strongly and proudly for what you believe and being decisive about that, once upon a time that was very, that was very admired. Today, not so much. Today we live in the age of tolerance. And so what that means that what is most lauded and most praised is when people say things like, well, I'm not really sure. I'm still thinking about that. I've got a lot of questions. I don't want to act like I've got it all figured out. You know, I used to be sure like you, but now I'm not so sure. You know, when you hear that kind of thing, that sounds very very enlightened. It sounds very tolerant. In fact, in a lot of ways, it sounds very humble, doesn't it? And while there certainly is a need and a place for humility in the life of a Christian, in fact, I'll say something about humility before this lesson is over, Can I just say emphatically right here that it is not humble to doubt what God has made clear and plain. Can I say that again? It is not humble to act uncertain about things that God has made clear and plain. Look with me in Acts the 26th chapter, please. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is preaching a just powerful sermon to King Agrippa. In Acts chapter 26... Paul then brings that sermon to a conclusion, a powerful conclusion, in verse 27. In Acts 26 and in verse 27, Paul says this. He says, King Agrippa. This is Paul. He's getting to the invitation portion of the sermon. King Agrippa, 
Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. You read all of Acts 26. Paul lays out an airtight case for New Testament Christianity. Paul begins by recounting his former life as a persecutor. He tells of his conversion and what it is that accounts for that dramatic change in his life. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus made the difference. And so Paul talks about how Jesus is the resurrected Lord, the evidence for that, the proof and the fulfillment of everything that the Scriptures had foretold. Which is why he then brings all of that to a big crescendo in verse 27 and he asks Agrippa, Do you believe? Do you believe? Paul is driving for a decision. He is calling for action in Agrippa's life. Paul is pressing upon Agrippa to act upon what has been the clear message of the gospel because he knows that Agrippa understands it. Which says to me that when God reveals His will, we are not free to just kind of waffle on it, to equivocate or to vacillate or to pretend in some way that, well, it's not really all that clear. And so instead, I'm going to act all humble instead of actually doing what the Scriptures are telling me to do. Look at me in Romans, the first chapter. Here's maybe the best illustration of that. In Romans chapter 1, we will resume our study of the book of Romans this evening, but I'd like to go back to Romans chapter 1. Look at the words that Paul says in verse 19. In Romans 1 and verse 19, Paul speaks of the testimony of creation. In Romans 1 and in verse 19, Paul writes there, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Did you get that? Paul says there that God has spoken... And He hasn't just spoken through the book. God has also spoken through creation. And what Paul says is that all people are expected to see that sermon, hear that sermon, perceive that sermon, and all of us are expected to get what the sermon of creation is telling us. It is telling us that there is a God. We are not free to say, oh, well, the incredible complexity of our universe the amazing design in the human body and in the natural world around us, that certainly could mean that there is a Creator. But you know, that's just your interpretation. No. God says it is the interpretation. It is the only correct interpretation. That is what God is clearly and plainly communicating and He expects that people will get that. And I will say to you once again, this is a principle that doesn't just confine itself to the Bible. This is a principle that we utilize in regular daily life. Think about a fellow who, who runs a stop sign. And he gets pulled over a little bit down the road and the police officer comes up to his window and he says, Sir, did you not see the big red sign back there? That sign means you're supposed to stop. And the guy says, oh yeah, I, I saw the sign back there, but, but that's just your interpretation of what that sign means. Young people, do not ever try that if you get pulled over for running a stop sign. It will not turn out good. 
No, that illustration shows us, that idea shows us that all of us are capable and expected to understand and interpret a stop sign in the exact same way. In fact, you don't even have to even know how to read to be able to see the big red sign and know, yep, I'm supposed to stop at that. Well, in much the same way, God calls upon all people to stop pretending that the Bible is some kind of a mythical, magical, mystical book that changes its meanings depending upon who's reading it. The Bible does not mean different things to different people. I've heard so many people say that throughout my life, it makes me want to throw up. The Bible means different things to different people. What a bunch of hogwash. It is not some shape-shifting optical illusion. It is God's unchanging Word. And He expects it to be understood and to be believed and to be obeyed. In fact, look back with me in Luke the 10th chapter again. In Luke chapter 10, after Jesus tells that parable to the man about the Good Samaritan... He then asked the lawyer a question. In Luke chapter 10, look in verse 36. In Luke 10 and verse 36, he says, Which of these three, priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Jesus says, All right, fella, you understand this. I know that you understand this. This teaching was clear. It was unmistakable. You know what it means. Now it's up to you. You have an obligation to go and do what it says. And unfortunately, unfortunately, that's oftentimes where the resistance comes. Because thirdly this morning, sometimes what it just boils down to is sometimes people just don't want to hear and understand Because that means that they then will have to obey what the Bible says. Can I grab a little bit of the Old Testament here? Look with me in the book of Judges, please. In Judges 21, look at the very end of the book. Look at the final statement in the book of Judges. In Judges 21, I'm reading here in verse 25. This is probably about as good of a summary that you'll find in all the Bible. One verse that summarizes an entire book. Judges 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If you've read the book of Judges before, then you know it is a shocking book. It speaks of a horrible time in Israel's history where there was appalling violence. There was rampant idolatry. There was wickedness and sin of every kind. There's stuff that happens in the book of Judges that I can't even believe takes place. Can I ask you about all of that? Was the problem there... An issue with God's Word not being clearly communicated to the people? Was it an issue somehow about the Ten Commandments not really being clear? You know, that stuff about thou shalt not have any graven images or no other gods before me or thou shalt not murder. Was that stuff just not really clear to people? Is that what the issue was? Was it an issue if there was just fuzziness in the Word of God and people just weren't able to really grasp it and understand it? Were there prophets speaking at that time saying, hey, you need to repent, you need to turn back to God? And people were saying to the prophets, you know what, that's just your interpretation. Was that the issue then? No, God was very clear. In fact, God was almost overly simplistic in His desires and intentions for His people. Those people could understand. The problem was that His Word was getting in the way. It was interfering with what they wanted to do. And so what they said is they said, forget God and forget His Word. We're going to do what is right in our own eyes. And that, of course, is the problem. 
In fact, I think that's the problem with the lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Would you go back there one more time? In Luke chapter 10, look at verse 29. I want to focus on verse 29. Jesus has complimented him for, hey, you got the correct interpretation. You understand those passages correctly. But notice in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, the text says, But he, desiring to justify himself, that's it, desiring to justify himself, I'm right, and I know that I'm right. I'm right just as I am, right where I am, just like I am, and I'm not going to let anybody tell me otherwise. And sadly, that attitude is not just a problem for people in the time of the judges. That attitude is not just a problem for a lawyer in Luke chapter 10. Sadly, that attitude is a problem for people today where people are confronted with the objective truth of God's Word and quite frankly, I just don't want to do what it says. I do not want to conform to what that is teaching. As I was preparing for this lesson, I came across an online exchange that a woman was having with her friend about homosexuality. And this friend uh, just churned out, just verse after verse, did it in a very kind and loving way. All these different passages on what the Bible says about homosexual relations and how that is an affront to God. It is sinful in the eyes of God. It is a sin that can, just like any other sin, it can condemn a person to hell, but it is a sin. Very clear about that, all those passages. Finally, at the end of all of that, the woman then responded and she said, and I quote, she said, yes. It is quite clear the Bible forbids homosexual practice. But I'm gay, so God will just have to figure it all out. I'm living in sin, and I'm going to keep on living in sin. God's going to have to figure that out. You know, in some way, I actually admire that woman's candor. Instead of her trying to pretend that the Bible is is difficult and unclear or that, you know, hey, there's maybe many possible interpretations of those passages, I appreciate the fact that she just flat says, I don't like what the Bible says. I don't like what it teaches about that. And so I'm not going to do it. Can I suggest to you this morning that sometimes when people launch out and pull out the that's just your interpretation card, They may be trying, verse 29, to justify themselves because they just don't want to humble themselves enough to obey God's commands. Now, those are the three bold statements that I think help us from Luke chapter 10 that help us in our approach to this whole interpretation business. But I did promise at the beginning of a lesson that there would be a bonus about what is the best way for us to respond to that. All right, We've got some, some solid things that we know to kind of work with, but what should we actually say? Here we're talking about some subject, and my friend says, well, that's just your interpretation. What should I say? Well, I believe the very best possible response in that situation is just respond with a question. In fact, this is a very sincere question. When someone says, that's just your interpretation, we just need to ask, Are you saying that my interpretation is incorrect? Or are you saying that you just don't like it? I think that's a fair question. And the reason that's a fair question is because we're asking for some clarity here. Think about it. The front half of that question acknowledges that, yeah, I could be wrong. And this is where we do need some humility. 
That yes, I have read the Bible, I've studied the Bible, I've drawn some conclusions, I've got some pretty solid convictions about what the Bible teaches, but I also recognize that I am not infallible. I recognize that I could be mistaken as sincere as I am. And so if I am mistaken, help me out. Help me out here if I've missed it. Help me to see where I've missed it so that I can correct course and I can do what's right. That's not being arrogant. That's being very genuine and sincere. But can I be honest? Many of the disagreements that people have biblically is over stuff that's just not very complicated. What the Bible says about baptism, what the Bible says about worship, what the Bible says about marriage, what the Bible says about homosexuality, what the Bible says about the church or about roles in the church, on and on the list goes. Much of that is not very complicated. You know, for centuries, Christians have been able to read and to study and to come together about these simple truths of Scripture. The problem has not been about the correct interpretation. No, the problem has often been, I just don't like what it means. And so this question just kind of brings us to the fork in the road. There's really only two choices here. Either this person is saying to me, hey... I notice a flaw in your reasoning. Here's something you maybe haven't thought about. Let me show you something from the Word of God. Let's study this. And as I said a moment ago, I'm all for that. I'm game for that. I want that. Help me to see where I've missed it. But many times, the second part of that question really drives at what's really going on there. Is it is a person saying, I just don't like your interpretation. It makes me uncomfortable. I really don't know how to argue against it because that is what the Scripture says. It's calling upon me to make some changes, some very unpleasant changes, and quite frankly, I don't want to make those changes. This is a question that provides some clarity about where do we go from here? Do we need to sit down and have a Bible study about this? Or is there maybe a heart issue that needs to be worked on? The good news in all of this is that you and I, we can trust God's Word. It does give us certainty. And furthermore, God has spoken to us in a manner that is clear and it is plain and we can understand Him and His will for us. And best of all, God gives us the time and the opportunity and the grace that we need to submit our will to His so that we can obey and do what He says and be brought into a right relationship with Him. If you're not a Christian this morning, it may be that you're not a Christian and you're really not even sure of what that means, why you need to become a Christian, how you go about becoming a Christian. You really don't have kind of even square one figured out on all of that. If that is the case with you this morning, would you come and see me after services? And let's just sit down with a Bible and we'll just let the Bible speak and we can be guided by God to the correct interpretation of what it is to be a Christian. If you're not a Christian and you, you do understand, you've got some knowledge, you know this stuff, you've got the correct interpretation, but you're just not doing anything with it, that's a bust. It is. Knowledge without action, it's essentially unbelief. And you need to come out of that. What you need to do is you need to put that knowledge into practice. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. 
You need to confess your faith in Jesus as God's Son. You need to repent and turn from sin. You need to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what the Bible says. In my opinion, I believe the Bible says that very clearly. But that's what the Bible teaches about how a person becomes a Christian. Can we help you today to take those critical steps? Brother or sister, it may be that you have taken those initial steps, but you have not been living faithfully for the Lord. You have not been serving Him as you ought. This is your invitation as well. It is your opportunity to make your life right with God. If we can pray with you, if we can encourage you, help you to serve God in a better way from this day forward, then we stand ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be, if we can help you to serve the Lord, we encourage you to come right now as we sing this song. Do that while we stand and while we sing.